This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Ryan's Thompson Fund, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, offering courageous conversations about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today's part of our ongoing series about parenting a child on the autism spectrum. We began by speaking with two adults on the spectrum themselves, Temple Grandin and David Finch, who gave us a window into what it's like to live with autism and Asperger's, respectively. Then we've been talking to parents about what the experience has been like for them. Until now, we've spoken entirely to moms, so I'm delighted to be speaking with a father, Nathan Poor, about his son, Marston, who's almost 11. Nathan and his wife, Jennifer, have two kids, Hope and Marston, and he currently works as the town manager in Falmouth. Nathan has lived in Maine all his life, attending the University of Maine and receiving his master's at the Muskie School here at USM. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Nathan. Happy to be here, Dr. Ann. Let's start at the beginning. How did you first begin to notice that something might be a little bit different about your son? Well, to take it to the very beginning, Marston had a very difficult birth. He was in ICU for two weeks, um, intensive care at the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital after experiencing some fairly traumatic um, aspiration issues at birth. And after successfully going through that and being declared to be a healthy baby boy, we took him home and the doctors told us that at worst he might experience some asthma over his life. And so we had a very typical first year with Marston and as we entered into his second year of life, we started observing him playing a little bit differently with toys than what seemed to be potentially the way he should. For instance, he would look at the bottom of toys, pay attention to the screws. Um, as the year progressed, uh, we noticed that he really wasn't moving forward with his speech. He wasn't really communicating. And that's when my wife, who has many connections in the education field, uh, found some specialists that would come take a look at Marston. And we were advised at that point to possibly have him tested. And at about two, we had him tested. And, and at that point, were you thinking like tested for something specific or sort of testing for something that seemed to be off, but you didn't know what? Because of my wife's education and 10 years teaching first grade uh, and having experienced um, working with students on the spectrum, uh, she had some speculation that he could be somewhere on the spectrum. Uh-huh. I see. So at two years old, you're thinking, all right, let's get some testing. And were you, when you went into that... Were you nervous? Were you hoping it would give clarity? Like, what would, how, how did you go into that moment? Well, we were actually a little distracted with some gastrointestinal issues that he seemed to suffer with for at least a year before that, year and a half. He always had problems feeding. Each feeding would last an hour and a half to two hours, when normally it should last, you know, a few minutes. And um, probably 50% of the time, he would uh, then vomit that and we would have to try to feed him again. Your question, were we prepared? Were we nervous? Um, I think we were distracted and not really knowing what was going to happen next. I'm imagining you were exhausted. 
Certainly. And we had just had our, our daughter, uh, who was only born 16 months after Marston. Um, and at that point, we knew Marston was struggling with life, which is why we named her Hope. Um, and um, that nervousness um, was overcome by still surprise and shock when he was diagnosed, even though we should have seen it coming. Well, when you say we should have seen it coming, like, were there, were there other things? When you say, like, he didn't play with toys normally, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, having a diagnosis puts some definitive clarity, I think, to the situation, but it's also not what you want to hear. You know, you may have your suspicions, you may have done your own self-diagnosis, um, but to hear it from a professional who does that a lot to tell you, yes, he has autism, um, it was hard to take. So you get this diagnosis, you're in shock. What do you do next? Well, that was over eight years ago, and, and of course, um, the Internet was certainly around, and we started doing research. And um, my wife probably read every book that, that was available. She's always been very, very attentive to detail and trying to find anything and everything that can help Marston. Uh, we immediately reached out um, to resources, whether it be the Autism Society of Maine, as I said, the Internet, um, and other people that my wife was connected with uh, in the education community, occupational therapists, speech therapists, and we ultimately started to seek out services from Child Development Services. And of course, family members were doing as much research as us, and soon you can imagine we were getting more advice than we could handle. <laughs> and uh, it was all very well-intentioned, um, even to the point where people were trying to suggest how we might try to feed him. And it, it became somewhat comical for my wife and I because they would say, have you tried ice cream? Have you tried pudding? Have you tried this? And and my wife and I would be very polite every time when someone would try to suggest something. And um, yeah, we tried that. We tried everything. Um, but the one thing we had around us, as I said, was a lot of support. What kind of support felt like it was actually helpful? I can imagine feeling like other parents don't necessarily really get it. You know, if you were going to teach someone who wanted to support a family in this situation, what would you say is the best kind of support? Boy, that's a, a hard question uh, to answer. The, the truth is we're extremely fortunate in that we have our family all around us. My wife's extended family is in our area. My family is very close by. That understanding, the care, the, the, the willingness to come in and give us a hand once in a while. Just listening. So this was all happening when he was two, and you're becoming inundated with people's advice and all these resources and therapists and services and so on. Um, at two, you know, he's still so young. I mean, there's so much of speech that's still developing. There's so much hope you you have for where this is going to go. And then as the, as the years went on, tell me a little bit about how it evolved and, and what you started to learn about what autism was going to mean for him since it can be so different for different kids. Realizing how autism would be different for Marston, for me anyway, didn't happen until probably a few years later because you have that built-in hope like, 
this will pass. You know, we're going to get through this. Some of the stories that you read, you read about, well, if you try the hyperbaric, you know, chambers or you go to a gluten casein free diet, um, you hear about these miracles. And um, so, you know, we carried that hope for a long time. Not that it doesn't exist today, but the hope was there that this would pass. He, he, he would get through this. We'd, we'd figure out a way with therapy to get him, I, I don't want to say off the spectrum, but maybe on the, the, the highest functioning end of the spectrum possible. As years passed, you know, you, we started to have that realization you know, this may not pass. It's unlikely that it will. So you start focusing in on giving him as much care, as much attention, as much therapy as possible to give him the best chance at being high-functioning and independent uh, throughout life. And maybe you could tell me a little bit about how what what started to get clear you know how is marston in terms of independence in terms of speech and functioning sure today at, at 11 um marston i can i can say is a very happy child when you meet marston for the first time you'll see a fairly tall um fit young boy most of the time with a smile on his face very little eye contact um he may be waving a hand in the air, or he may be looking like he's bouncing to music, potentially. Um, but uh, generally, uh, he's, he, he looks like a happy boy, but you can definitely tell there's something that is um, apparent about his, uh, his disability. Verbally, Marston ha- is, is very, very limited with expressive communication. Sometimes he'll whisper. And you really don't know what he's saying. Jen, his mom, and myself, we, we understand it because we practically read his lips. And um, But what we're working on right now is using what we're calling his on voice or his big voice. And he's starting to use his regular voice rather than a whisper or a grunt or a squeal. And it's so incredible to hear his voice. Um, but he's also... Cyclical, I think, is the best way to describe it. Um, just when we think we're really moving in the right direction, it'll go in the wrong direction. And that could be from behavior or um, his gastrointestinal issues early on. Uh, beginning in the spring of 2012, um, Marston developed constipation, no other way to say it, and um, once a child with autism like Marston um, gets into that state, it can be very difficult to get them out of it. And local doctors who were very good with us um, told us that these sort of things could take three to six months to work themselves out. And he started developing a lot of behavioral issues because he was so uncomfortable. And, um, you know, just like children and adults on the spectrum have some sensory issues. You can imagine there are sensory issues with regard to the simple task of going to the bathroom. And to hear medical advice that says, well, we're going to have to really work hard on this. It's going to last three to six months. Uh, I was wondering how, how we could get through the next three to six days. 
fast forward a year and a half is how long it took um, with a lot of great help, including some fantastic doctors uh, that we um, became acquainted with down at um, Dartmouth Hitchcock in Manchester, New Hampshire. These are, these are the aspects of autism that we just don't think about or we don't hear about, but it makes sense to me. The kind of sensory overload, we, th- we tend to think of it in terms of like sound or touch, sure. but the body's own sensations. Does Marston have sensory sensitivity in other ways as well? Uh, he does, and he seems to try to self-regulate that. If, if he's having difficulties, one of the things he likes to do is jump. So we have, you can imagine, you, you know those uh, little five-foot diameter uh, small trampolines that people use for exercising? Well, we've got, we have one on the first floor, and we have one on the second floor. We have a trampoline out back. Um, we have beds and furniture that have broken springs. And... Um, he, he's gone through a growth spurt last year, so now we have to watch out for the headroom. <laughs> and uh, so that's one of the ways that Marston self-regulates. He also um, tends to tap things on his chin or his, or his teeth. Um, but when it comes to noise and crowds, um, he really he, he, he does quite well in that area. And I know some, some approaches to autism uh, are about trying to kind of remove those kinds of calming behaviors, stimming as they call it, and some other approaches to working with kids don't try to get rid of it, but try to really support the child in whatever does work to calm them. How how have you and your wife sort of navigated what seems best for you? Sure, that's true. that's, That's so true. For instance, with the jumping, we see that as also good exercise. Um, and it's a great way for him to have a break. And when we're working with him and trying to um, work on his reading or other uh, skills, um, jumping is one of the things that we can use as a reward uh, for his break. With regard to tapping on a chin or especially your teeth, you start to be a little bit concerned about you know, damage to the teeth possibly. So that's something that we try to refocus um, lately, he's, he's got away from that, but uh, he's decided that it's time to put his hands over his ears. When we talk to him, and this is only within the last four weeks, and he'll uh, make some noises at the same time, so he's totally tuning you out that way. The problem is if he walks away and you call out his name, and if he starts getting into an area of potential danger, he doesn't hear you. He's always been very, very good about listening, you know, stop wait, um, you know, you don't want to hold his hand everywhere in public. He's an 11-year-old boy. So now we're dealing with this new challenge of him putting his hands over his ears. So that is another area of this, this stimming that we're trying to stop. So you're right. There are those you try to stop, and there are those that are more appropriate that can be calming and helpful to him. For you personally, you know, there's so much about this that sounds challenging, and maybe even like unexpected. This is not what you were imagining, I'm guessing, when you were going to become a dad. What have been the, the things that have been kind of the most challenging, the most difficult for you to find a way to work with? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd like to turn that around, if, if I could, just yeah. a minute, um, because when I start thinking about that, I can tell you about all of the things that are a challenge, the differences in my life than maybe if Marston didn't have autism. But you really have to focus in on really how hard it is on Marston. Imagine living in a world 
or in a country or on another planet that you couldn't communicate. And they're all speaking a different language that you have to try to somehow figure out. At the same time, you're dependent. You need them to help you find shelter, to help feed you. So no matter how hard it is on the caregivers or the parents, it's, it's hard to even imagine what it's like for the person on the spectrum. Is that part of what helps you to, to shift your focus? Like, do you re- sort of remind yourself? You know, I've, I've really, um, early on, I think there was a little bit of, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it self-pity or, or, you know, just feeling down on things and the woe is me sort of thing. Um, that, that's no longer present in any of my thoughts. Um, you, I th- it's it's like s- stages of grief, but it's stages of parenting. If you told me what my life would be before I experienced it as a parent of Marston, you know what? If if you told me your son's born, congratulations, today's a wonderful day, but we want to tell you that he is going to be on a on a developmentally delayed, you know, um, you know, uh, autism spectrum. And he won't be able to really speak. He'll be dependent on you for his entire life. You'll worry about him running into the travel lane at the shopping center even when he's 18. Um, And your life will be almost completely devoted to caring for him. I I don't know if I could have taken that. I don't know what I would have done. And But because of him, I've become a better person and I can respect people like him and other people that I didn't, I, that I took for granted in the past. Um, it's really, it's all about him and it's all about the great life that we have to live and all of the wonderful things that he's brought into our life. How did you get there? Not on my own. Uh, you know, you, you, you learn from others. I've, I've learned a great deal from my wife. Um, I've learned a great deal from my community, from my church. Um, for instance, when we go to church, let's say, or we're at a holiday gathering, and then you hear people talk about how great they feel about being around Marston, you, you know, you think, wow, you're right, and I don't want to take this for granted. This is, a, this is really a great life, and I'm lucky to have this guy. Hmm. I have... Um, maybe a little bit of of advice too and i have to even take my own advice sometimes when you're around nearby with him very close or someone that really can't communicate and you're speaking to someone else another adult or another child that can communicate you you sometimes forget that you're talking about that person right next to you and just because he has a hard time communicating his receptive communication i believe is outstanding and we ran into a situation where we were at um, in a public venue where there was a tour, and um, the tour guide um, noticed that he was getting too close to an artifact that was historic. It was in a historic-type location, and the tour guide was, was very, very nervous. And this is a place that welcomes schools, bring them by the busload, and um, the tour guide um, went to his assistant and said, you're going to really need to, to, to do better, you know, do a better job keeping him away from these things. 
and I I don't knock the tour guide for taking their job seriously. They're they're a steward of the, of those very valuable you know historic artifacts, but to have the conversation like that with him in earshot, you know, it would be better if they leaned down and say, "Hi, what's your name?" Maybe he could spit out something. Maybe not. And then the helper would say, well, this is Marston. And the conversation can then talk about educating Marston about not touching things. So I guess that's a little bit of advice for people that aren't exposed to people like him or or folks with just about any disability. Have the respect that they're there and they they, they very well may understand you. You know, this is almost like a confession. I think before I immersed myself in studying autism to do this series, I think I mistakenly assumed that a young person with autism who couldn't talk, I assumed that that must mean that they had very significant cognitive limitations. And in reading, what I've understood is that that isn't necessarily the case at all, that actually there are kids who can have difficulty expressing themselves, but cognitively maybe just as thoughtful and reflective about life as, as you or I are, maybe in different ways. It's so true, and it takes me back to his peers and being included with peers that develop typically. And an- another quick story, um, one of his classmates, I, I can't recall the exact venue of the event, but it was some sort of a play or or. or a concert, let's say, and it was backstage, and um, Marston had gotten into something. I don't know what it was. It was a little trouble, and and uh, my wife, Jen, tried to redirect him, and one of his classmates said, no, that's okay, Mrs. Poor. I speak his language. I'll be able to help. And you have to be around Marston to understand him. And I think, like you just said, I've, I've been ignorant all of my life up until now about many of these things. Um, And the more exposure, the greater joy you're going to have meeting different people, including those on the spectrum. And uh, if I could, um, way in the beginning when he was first diagnosed, I was always prepared for that that run-in or that incident in public where Marston wasn't respected or he was treated differently or there was little tolerance for perhaps um, something that he might do that he didn't mean to. I was always ready to have that, I don't want to say combative or, or defensive type, you know, you know, I'm going to honor my son here and stick up for him sort of thing. I've never had to do that. I've never run into a situation where I've had anyone that's been disrespectful or not tolerant of him in any situation. Zero. There have been times, one in particular at Toys R Us, where he ran down an aisle and uh, knocked over a woman that was uh, looking at some toys, I think, for her daughter standing by. And she was quite shocked and uh, quickly looked up and was ready to have some words with somebody and um, just uh, looked at Marston and smiled and engaged in him with him so you get to experience having a child on the spectrum how good people are it sounds like it sort of restored your faith in humanity in a way like you were prepared for the worst and in fact you've been pleasantly surprised 
Very much so. I want to ask you now about your, your daughter, Hope. Is your daughter neurotypical? Yes, she is. And I'm guessing that, um, you know, as we talk about in some ways the benefits to kids, or you know, of inclusion for both kids, have there been kind of guiding principles for you in making sure that hope isn't sort of lost in all the intense focus and therapies that are given to your son? Or how, how have you been thinking about that? You know, it's, it's interesting having hope. In many respects, she takes on some of the same characteristics as an only child um, because she doesn't necessarily have a, a sibling that will play typically with her. And you know, one of the complaints we'll hear with Hope is, it's so sad that I don't have a brother that won't fight with me. <laughs> <laughs> and now, why would she say something like that? Is that because all her friends do fight with their brothers? Exactly. <laughs> she wants to have the same experience as her friends. But no, Hope, Hope is um, a very, very understanding sister. Um, she's great with him, and in some respects, I think um, Marston considers Hope probably his best friend. And when she says, why won't he fight with her, I mean, he might not fight with her verbally, but do they get into struggles? They do. He hasn't quite, um, I don't know the best way to say it. He's not quite brave enough yet to take her on. Does he struggle with anxiety? A little anxiety, and... Um, you know, as his body is growing, there's a little bit of, you know, he, he's fearful of some things. He's, he's fearful of, of, you know, trying to, let's say, wrestle or, or play real hard. Um, it's, it's evident in, in, in recreation sport type play. Um, he has to become very, very comfortable uh, before he, you know, he's not afraid of taking the pass with the basketball or catching the baseball. Um, yet at the same time, uh, his climbing skills are almost frightening. He's extremely skilled. So activities like climbing, so something that's where he's really with himself, depending on himself and not needing to interact with someone else passing him a ball, that's easier for him. Absolutely. When something is within his own control, he's at, he's at his best. Yeah. I want to ask you now a little bit about uh, how you and your wife um, have been in this together because so often you know, people cope with, loss and challenge and fear in, in different ways. And I'd be curious to know how that has been for the two of you. How have you worked that out? You know, the, the, the best way to, to, to look at our parenting as a couple is it's, it's a real team effort. Um, but I will admit that um, I'm the subcontractor and she's the general contractor. Uh, we, we laugh at that, but I came up with that term several years ago. Um, she's really the leader, the force in this, and um, I I do what I can uh, to follow her lead because it's it's exceptional. She's become an expert in so much about the spectrum, and she knows Marston more than anyone. So it's it's almost ironic that I'm the one here speaking about this when. Really, she's the expert. I'm sure when she listens to this, she'll she'll be correcting me on some of the facts that I laid out. Um, but it's a team effort, definitely. Um, and we couldn't do it alone without the help that we have through our in-home support services that's provided through um, CDS. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how it would be possible without it. Because when Marston is idle and when he's not doing anything, he's at his worst. So we need to keep him in structured activities as much as possible. 
So part of what I'm hearing is the way that you two have kind of coped is, is that you value so much what she does. That even though it sounds like she does so much more than you, that you have given that so much acknowledgement and recognition. Are, are there times when you've been really afraid and she has been filled with hope and there's sort of been, it's been hard to kind of hold the different places that you guys are? Oh, sure. We're both in different places. Um, and it, it always seems to work out that um, it balances out. Um, when one of us is down, the other is there to help pick up the other. Jen and I are the ones that understand Marston more than anyone. We can, we can speak his language. And that creates a great deal of understanding. And so if you understand each other, there's less opportunity for conflict. I'm so glad for you. Nathan Poor, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's been all my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Ann. We always like to end the show with resources, and this week we'd like to list two different resources of schools in the area that can help with kids on the spectrum. The first is the Ocasisco School in Cape Elizabeth, and the second is the Morrison Center in Scarborough. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview and you'd like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. When you're there, you can listen to the show, but you can also subscribe to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can write us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. You can also download a show for your morning commute on your smartphone. You can also do that from iTunes, and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Russell for being our consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the intro music. Coming up next is Speak Freely.